Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Bullshift the Podcast. My name is John DeGuy. I'm the author of Bullshift the Book and also the host of the podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about personal finance from the perspective of behavioral economics and how our own behavior has an impact on the decisions we make financially. My guest this week is Lawrence Lynch. Lawrence is a professor at Fanshawe College in London, Ontario, and he's a certified financial planning professional, a CFP, which makes him a good guy in my books. He believes the public needs to be better informed about personal finance and and financial literacy, and that financial planning is about helping people, not selling products. Within the finance programs at Fanshawe, Lawrence aims to educate those who will one day assist future generations with their finances, which is exactly why I wanted to get him onto this podcast because I'm really interested in what uh, the future has in store for the young minds of the nation. And, uh, and as a result of that, Lawrence, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Let's, uh, let's begin by talking a little bit about um, kids these days. Would you say economic students uh, in, in the current context are, are involved in the behavioral versus traditional sort of debate? Do they, do they talk about um, the, the, the interplay between behavioral economics and traditional economics? And if so, where do they come down on the subject? Well, I think, I think certainly, um, I think students are aware of people's behaviors. I don't think they think about it so much though. And certainly the, the economics that's being taught is, you know, for, for most students, they're, you know, in any sort of business program, they're going to get an introductory economics combo of micro and macro, maybe a combined course, um, and often nothing else. And even if somebody goes through and studies, you know, a full degree of economics, um, at best, they might have one half course elective that's on behavioral. Um, so it's something that I think should come after. I think you should, you know, sort of take a look at the basic theory so you understand where some of those things are coming from because conceptually a lot of it still holds. But, uh, you know, and certainly in your, in your book as well, um, and the whole behavioral side of things is that, as I said, you know, the, the students are aware that there's behavior, people, people do certain things, but I don't think they attach that to anything other than at a micro, like sort of a self level, you know, of deciding what movie they want to go to or deciding what they want to order. Um, you know, what they want to order online when they're shopping. Um, I don't think they see the bigger behavioral picture of things. Okay. So if you, if you consider the fact that they don't really look at behavior in a broad sense, do you think that they maybe could be doing more in the traditional micro and macro 101 sort of courses? These are courses that are seen as being rudimentary and foundational. Do you think these foundational courses might be able to incorporate some behavior into the theory, or is that going to be just pure numbers and understand the, you know, the uh, the, the downward sloping demand curve and the ISLM uh, sort of stuff, or 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 should we start talking about behavior then already? Um, as I, said, I think you need to look at some of the basics first. Um, but you know, for example, 
you know, any economics course, you're going to see, as you said, you know, the supply and demand curves. But I think still a lot of students are going to come out of economics, like those introductory courses, and think that if they walk into a major corporation's boardroom, they're going to see these curves on the wall, <laughs> like there's some sort of real thing. Um, you know, and again, it's the area where a lot of students have difficulty with, with economics, with any courses anymore, is they try to memorize their way through stuff. And it's so much in the way of concepts. So I think if you started with those concepts and, and then said, okay, let's enter in what people actually do. And you could give very clear examples of day-to-day -day things that the students could make sense of. So I think absolutely it could be done simultaneously. So these concepts that we talked about, sometimes concepts give way to being dogmas. They become entrenched. And, yeah. and a lot of people that have been around the block a few times, like us, that are you know, a little bit, little bit more mature, uh, after a while, things become almost preconceived. And, and it's just accept, accepted that, that that's just the way things are. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about when that, when that forms. And if uh, students these days in their early 20s are already susceptible to sort of putting things into a neat compartmentalized box and saying, okay, that's the way things work. I got that down. Now on to the next thing, or or do they keep their minds open? Do they remain inquisitive and say, okay, well, I understand this sort of kind of. Maybe I should look into it a bit further, and maybe I can have my thinking evolve. There, there are still. I'm not going to make a blanket statement on that, but I would say um, I've been at Fanshawe since '98, and I was teaching economics in '98. I'm still teaching economics now, but more so within the financial planning courses. But um, there used to be a lot more. Um, inquisitiveness um, of, of wondering about things than there is now. Uh, there's a lot more, as you mentioned, you know, things, things being in a box. You know, tell me what I have to memorize um, because that's what they've had up to now. Now, certainly we get a lot of, in, you know, in one of my classes this past semester, I had students from at least a dozen different countries. Um, and certainly you see very different sets of um, outlooks on things and perspectives on things. Um, with all sorts of causation as to why they why they see it that way, um, so I think it's it's very broad around the world, and I think because Canada is a very you know um, multicultural, multinational country, I think you start to see people realizing that people see things differently and they think about things in different ways. And absolutely, I'm seeing people that are in their twenties, their early twenties, and they do have very different perspectives on things and different beliefs and different little heuristics that they apply and different biases that they they factor in because of the life and because of how they've been raised and how they've been educated up to now. So, but certainly less, less so than in the past. So here's an example then, buy and hold. Buy and hold is a fundamental tenet of uh, the way most people think about finance today. What about uh, children these days? Uh, these people that are coming into the workforce and that are getting ready to enter the workforce, are they as, uh, as accepting of that or are they more inclined to say, well, maybe I should think of different ways of uh, looking at things. I, I, think, I think it's a mix. And I, I've had these, you know, I teach the licensing courses, both the mutual funds licensing and securities licensing courses. And I always get students that have um, some very interesting ideas, I'll say, on, on investing. Um, and certainly recently, it's been the whole crypto part of things. And I had a student last year that he was very outspoken and he was like, you know, all you should invest in is crypto. And, and I'm trying to explain to him the basis of what is actually an investment. 
you know, and that there, that there kind of needs to be something that's an underlying value to it. And, and he wasn't really understanding that. Um, as, the, as the course progressed and we looked at more things and we, you know, he, he saw more about how things worked, he started to see it a little bit. And then this semester, I didn't have him this semester, I had him last semester, um, things started to really collapse with crypto. <laughs> and suddenly he's sending me an email, he says, I see what you were talking about now. Um, um, but it was, it was he, hadn't, he hadn't seen these things happen. And certainly we've seen so many people that have seen nothing but, you know, doesn't matter what you put your money into, it was going up. Um, you know, I sort of use the analogy of you can have a good boat or a not very good boat. If they're, if they're closing up the dam and the water's going up, you're going up. Um, when the dam breaks, you want to be in a better boat. <laughs> um, but, you know, but so many students are relying, all their news information is coming from social media. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. And a lot of, you know, you, you know if you look at what you get fed on a lot of these news sites, um, it's tracking what you're looking at. It's tracking whether you like it or don't like it. So you keep getting fed more of what you like, which comes back to more biases. Right. So it, which in, in turn can either uh, challenge or exacerbate conventional wisdom, depending on what your news feed is telling you. So I'm wondering, would you say um, students that are, that are in your courses are now more inclined to sort of accept what's in the textbook as being that's right? Or will they be more inclined to challenge conventional wisdom or challenge the way things have been done previously, precisely because their feeds and their social media is, is saying, well, you can make money quickly this way and you can look at these other alternative things. Uh, where do you think they come down relative to a generation previously? Or when you started uh, you, you make an interesting point because I, I, I generally see that there's not, um, the, the inquisitiveness isn't really there. Um, and there seems to be a lot of belief in that, well, I saw this, so it must be true. Um, and then sometimes, uh, and, and, I, and I don't know, it's an interesting point of, but what if you're seeing something different in sort of the, the national industry materials on this compared to what you're seeing, you know, in your social media feed? And I haven't, had, again, I, I, get, I get the pushback from the students, as I mentioned, where they have particular beliefs that seem to be conflicting from the norm. Um, and, and I think they sort of fight the norm on, on lots of things, probably. You know, if, if you were to see them in a, you know, a more, a more non-course-specific environment, I think they would be fighting a lot of the norms in a lot of cases. But, think, not, but not thinking about it so much. So that's the irony, is the good news is that I think if you want people to be capable of rational, independent thought, critical thinking, uh, not accepting the norms is likely to be a good thing. Then again, if you're rejecting norms just to sort of embrace other things that are half-baked, uh, <laughs> maybe we should be hopeful that people could embrace the norm again. It's interesting because there's this give and take. On the one hand, you want the, uh, the people coming into the industry, the people that are going to be the financial thought leaders of the future, to be able to integrate information from a whole variety of inputs and to filter through them and, and to say, okay, this makes sense, or, well, this works, but only in this context. If, on the other hand, they can't reliably discern that a crypto, quote-unquote, investment doesn't have an underlying value, then, then that premise is already throwing you off. If you're accepting something which doesn't have a, a rational premise, then everything that follows from it can, can lead you further astray. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, I think you, you'd want people to be 
prepared to be a little more iconoclastic, to be a little more, um, you know, I'll think about it myself, thank you very much. But, but if, if what you're thinking about on your own is really just what you're being spoon-fed by the latest uh, TikTok phenom, then, then you're not really, <laughs> what you're thinking for yourself is you've just got someone else telling you what to think and you're not necessarily stepping back and reflecting carefully. Well, and I, and I think you know, along, those, along those same lines is we, we know that certainly during COVID, we saw lots and lots and lots of uh, self-directed accounts being opened up, you know, the do-it-yourself account. And people were, you say, okay, so where are people getting their investment advice? And a lot of these self-directed accounts are putting research and things on there, but I'm not sure how helpful that would be to a lot of people, but it was there. But a lot of people were getting their advice from places like Reddit. <laughs> um, you know, we saw, we saw GameStop go the way it did. Um, and then we had following that big upswing in people do, doing it themselves, there was massive complaints going through the regulators about these investments were unsuitable in your self-directed account. <laughs> Say, well, these weren't suitable for me, but you picked them. You didn't, you didn't have anybody advising you, yeah, but they weren't right and I lost money. But, you know, and, 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 I, and I have this discussion in class when I talk to the students that are going into the industry, I said, when you are advising a client, um, I said, in general, in our society, do you think people are more willing or less willing than they were in the past, based on your own experiences, to take responsibility for their own actions? And they universally say less, less willing. People are not going to take responsibility for their own actions, but then they want to do it themselves, but then have somebody to blame. <laughs> so it's, 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 I, think, I think a lot of people, just sort of back to your question, is I think as they get older, and they start looking at them being in this career, I think they're really wrestling with, um, I'm concerned because I know my people and I know that they look to blame somebody. And I know that there's all sorts of conflicting information out there and I don't know what to believe anymore. And I think they're just starting to come to that point where they go, I don't know what to believe anymore. Because now that I'm getting them and trying to train them for a profession as opposed to, you know, the usual, here's the things you must know for a basic education. They're starting to go, oh, I don't know what to do here. Uh, so it, you had mentioned earlier that you're teaching the courses for licensure, for, for having a, a license to, to sell mutual funds or to give advice with regard to securities, marketable securities. So the, the, the students that you have are the people who will one day be, in many instances, giving advice to retail clients. Is that fair? Yes. So then... Um, what advice do you give them in terms of um, starting their career, not in terms of how to build a business, but in terms of how to honorably offer counsel to people who come to them looking for perspective and context and guidance? Um, I, I will tread carefully on that one. <laughs> um, if it was me doing the hiring, I would not allow anybody that had only that their entire education in terms of working with a client came from either one of the two national courses that's available for mutual funds or the only course that's available for securities because neither one of those provide enough information to help you have a client make a decision on something um, um, and even the regulations now on the new um, client focused reforms did not go, it's, it's a significant improvement, it's happy, I'm happy to see it. But it didn't go nearly far enough um, to actually 
helping a client understand what they would need to know to understand what the risk is. Um, I add a whole lot of things in like the mutual funds course, is the one I teach more, more commonly because it's a single course as opposed to a pair of courses. And I've also got typically younger students in that one. So it's sort of their first exposure to these things. So I add a lot of things in there. There's like, okay, you need to know this. You need to know this. You need to know this. Um, you know, and, and we talk about, you know, even some of the rules around, you know, what is sales communication versus what are documents that are simply considered fact that aren't considered sales communication documents. And, and, and I go through these actual documents, which are not shown in the text. Um, and show them what they are, show them what they look like. And the students themselves come to the conclusion of, well, that's a sales tool, right? No, it's not. That's a fun fact document. That's the mandatory document you must give to the client. They said, but it's a sales tool. You know, even where it says risk, it says low, low, medium, 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 high, high. And that's the extent of what it tells the client about risk, as well as a bunch of past performance figures. It's like, okay, so how does this help a client understand what the risk actually is? Well, it's not there. You have to go to the simplified perspectives for that, which is not required. And even then, that's now you're into a 500-page document. That, so the, the client-focused reforms, the, I have no problem with the reformers part. I think it's great. But, but the, you know, a, new, a new graduate, a, new, a newly licensed person isn't shown the tools that they would need to use to actually help the client understand what those risks actually are, you know, and how, how significant they might be. For example, if we look now at, you know, you know these things are sort of in, in, a, in a one liner or a one paragraph sort of thing with regard to, well, the inverse relationship between interest rates and bonds. Okay, well, what about a high coupon bond or, or a low coupon bond or a long-term versus a short-term? Or what about credit quality and risk? And, and what, what happens, you know, and, and I say to them, I said, so, We've seen rates going up and up, and we've seen, um, you know, the the prices going down. Whereas, you know, less than a year ago, I'm sure you'd have had people who were licensed to sell mutual funds that would have said, okay, well, if we look at the historical returns on this bond fund, it's done really well, and we're only expecting rates to go up now. So you'll do even better. It's like, oh, <laughs> you know, firm writes big check because it was one line where it said this relationship. But it does. They don't. They don't actually understand the risk. So right now, what if you put your client into a bond fund now? Oh, they've been losing money. I wouldn't want to do that now. Yeah, but <laughs> you don't get it. So there's 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 a lot of basic facts that are in those courses, but it does. They don't go nearly far enough yet to help the students. Um, and they still rely, even when I have them go through a, a, very, a fairly elaborate exercise with a whole little mini retirement plan. They still rely very heavily. Um, on that little questionnaire, whatever that comes out to. And I tell them, if it's got a score on it, it's not valid because the score is of no use. If there's a single thing on there that indicates, you know, the client says, I'm high risk, I'm high risk, I'm high risk, I understand this, that, whatever else. Oh, I need the money in six months. They'll go with almost 100% equities. But the client said they needed it in six months. Yeah, but the score was high. I said, yeah. And remember when I remember when I gave this to you and I said, do not go by the score. I said, I'm deliberately giving you a score-based one because they're very common, but they're of no use because, and you got trapped in it. Right. <laughs> Good. Well, that, that's, uh, that's important context. Can I just ask you very quickly what you would do then if, if, uh, if the coursework to, to do the mutual fund registration or the Canadian securities course is not enough 
and you wouldn't hire someone with just that, what else would you look for if you were hiring? I think I'd want to put them through probably in-house training using the resources that you have. You know, and, I, and I showed the students, you know, one of the best resources, because you know, even, even a fun facts document is only required to be updated once a year. So if I had one that was, that was printed um, in December 2021, it would still be being given right now, potentially, using, using information that would have been from, say, November 2021 um, or October 2021 and showing that to the client. So it's showing all past stuff. But so I say, I show them the website. Say, if you go to the website, sometimes they're going to show you information as of, you know, the last business closed, interactive things. And, and again, it varies a lot depending upon the mutual fund companies, but they should know those tools to use. And I think if, if there was mandatory in-house training so that, you know, employees had to go through training and had to, had to score something better than a 60% um, to say, okay, here's the tools that I would use. Here's how I would go through. Here's how I would go through. Um, and you, it's, it's easy to put together simulations now where you could put people through things pretty quickly and efficiently so that you knew that they weren't going to be dangerous to clients and you wouldn't end up with all these suitability problems later on. I don't, I don't blame the, the, the advisors so much. In some cases, they're just clueless. They don't know what they don't know. Um, they just do what they were trained. And, but if we train them better, they could do a better job. And my understanding is they're looking at some changes with that because MFDA and IROC are basically merging. So I guess we'll see what comes of that, but the regulations haven't changed any since this past spring. Children these days, you'll know that uh, Bullshift talks a, a good deal about biases in general, but also optimism bias in particular. And one of the things that I think is sort of on the mind of young people these days more than ever before is climate change. And I'm wondering if, there's an intersection between the, uh, the, the maybe facile view of how capital markets work and the maybe somewhat dour view of what the future might hold for the climate and whether or not young people are maybe a bit schizophrenic about whether to be optimistic if you're looking at the glass half full with regard to capital markets are fine and I'm going to make scads of money or yeah, but we're all doomed because we're going to be frying uh, by the time we're middle aged because the, the, the world is getting so hot. So. Can you give me a sense of maybe the zeitgeist of, uh, of your students? I don't, I mean, that, certainly that's a question better asked of them. But from, from, my, from my perspective of things, uh, you know, absolutely there's, 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 well, because they're in a finance program, there's, there's often lots of talk about that side of things. Um, and certainly I, I think they are, you know, certainly there's a real optimism bias in there. Um, but optimism is also, you know, one of the biggest measures in an emotional quotient. Um, assessment of success in post-secondary and success in life in general is that optimi optimism score. Um, so you, you want to have that, but <laughs> you need some realism in there. Then, as you said, then you get into some battling of things. Um, on the on the environment side of things, um, I'm seeing lots of talk on that, hearing lots of talk on that, but I'm not seeing lots of action on those things. You know, it's like you know when we have you know in in, in your book you talked about. You know, you know, lots of lots of things being said but not done, <laughs> and and I see the same thing. You know, on the on the environment side of things, almost, you know, regardless of age, young people, older people, but certainly the young people have taken this up as a as a cause to some degree, which I think is great. But so much of it still is just it's talk and complaining, 
And I find in lots of topics, people will post all sorts of complaints and they'll complain about this and that. I say, but, but what's your suggestion? You know, what, what, what would you do? Um, and even um, you know, on the statistics on some of these things of you know, the, the number of young people that, um, that have said they've done something, well, what did you do? I think if you challenge people to what the action is, I don't know if I'd see it because I, you know, so I, don't, I don't see them. You know, I don't see kids on bikes. I don't see younger people on bikes. Um, I know at Fanshawe, they've put an incredible number of resources, as is the city, bike lockers, all sorts of things to protect people's bicycles so they aren't stolen. They don't even get used. So there's lots of talk on it. Um, and, and I think maybe they don't know what they can do. And I think that if, if you gave them some, I'm not saying they're irresponsible. I'm saying, I think they want to do something about this, but I don't think they know what they to do. They feel relatively powerless. It. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can see that. So if, if nothing else, one of the things that you may have to do is recalibrate your own expectations. And do you think people who um, come to terms with economic growth, slowing demographics being a problem, the environment being a drain in terms of, insurance claims and crops not being as productive and, and what have you. Do you find that young people are perhaps recalibrating their expectations lower than they, than they had before? And do you think there are actually people who now, young people who would actually say, yeah, I don't think my life is going to be as good as my parents' life? Um, I think some would say it's not going to be as good as. Um, but I don't think that would represent the majority. Um, you know, I, I'm seeing I'm seeing more things now with not, not not the age that I have as students, but sort of you know the 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 more recent graduates side of things, where they're not worrying about saving anything for their retirement. They just think it's all going to work out. You know, because everything has always worked out up to now. So they don't they don't save. Wow, that's so that's scary. I, I it never occurred to me that that would be the case in general, and, and in particular, you're, you're talking about even your finance students, your even the people who basically would would be giving advice to clients if they were working, giving advice to retail clients, telling the clients to save. But that's well, good I for think, you, but not for me. I think they. I think once we go through, I mean, certainly the one of the earliest times they're going to see it um, would be in the mutual funds course because it comes fairly early in the program. Retirement planning comes afterwards, but I have them run through a little retirement plan, a very simplistic, keeping a, keeping all the complexities out of it, just so they can go through the mechanics of it to see, okay, here's the shortage the client's going to have. So they get to see how much would accurately come from somebody for CPP and how much money would accurately come from OAS. Because I asked them ahead of time, said, how much do you think it will be? I don't know. Enough to live on? Well, probably. Oh, that's interesting. So I get some interesting responses when I know they don't know the answer. Um, but then when they start to go through it and they say, okay, so what do you think about, um, you know, would, would getting, even if you got the maximum for CPP and OAS, would that be enough to live on? Well, no, like you could probably couldn't even pay your rent for that. That's the first time they've seen that. But if you look at the general population, they have no idea how much is going to come from these things, you know, and they may have parents that got, had defined benefit plans as opposed to defined contribution plans. And I know when, when I teach the retirement planning course and we talk about the different types of pensions, um, I tell students, there's actually a reasonable number of people that opt out of the pension plan. They choose not to be in it because they can't afford the cash flow because they've got so much going towards debt. You know, and then with, with debt as it is, you know, we've, we, we've increased the ratios for how much people can borrow compared to their income. 
and, and we allow people to take massive amounts of money out of their RSPs. And, and now we're setting up a new plan for them to save money, basically another tax-free savings account that's just for house buying. Um, so when is it you're going to save for your retirement? But I, I think they somehow think that somebody has thought this out and all the numbers will work out, but it's not going to. When you got $4,000 a month going towards your mortgage. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> You've been teaching now for over 20 years, and, yes. and as a result, you've seen a lot of change, not only in the students, but I think I would surmise also in the curriculum. What would you say is, has changed the most in terms of what you teach uh, to the students in, in 2023 compared to what you would have taught in 1998 or whatever it was when you started uh, about a quarter of a century ago now? What, what, what's not, not, not the students here, but what's, what's the actual content of what's in between the pages of the textbook? What's changed the most? The, um, well, certainly in, in recent, recent years, um, we've, um, we, we've, added, we've added things to make a lot of the, you know, sort of the reality of what they're going to be doing when they go out there um, more realistic than here's the stuff you need to know. Um, getting it a little bit more applied as opposed to, you know, simply the facts. Um, and, and adding in, you know, certainly in our financial planning course, we basically went from, from nothing. Um, it was a fairly simplistic mechanical, it was an entry-level course, but what's been added to that one now is all the things, you know, on, on human behavior, on heuristics, on, you know, what, what spots of the brain do different things, how different people do different things for different reasons, all sorts of those elements that we then tie to other courses and say, now, I remember, what, remember in this other course you did this? Yes. You see how this would influence this situation? You know, we tell you these facts about what you should do with your client, but at the same time, you know, you need to realize that your clients are going to do things that you don't understand. You know, and you're going to say, okay, so do you want to go ahead with this? I'm not sure. Like, what do you mean you're not sure? We, we just went through. I put together exactly what you want, and you say you can afford it. Now you're not saying you're sure about it. You're saying you're not sure about it. Um, so we, we've put a lot more of those sorts of things in for them to to understand, you know, again, exactly the sorts of things that you've got in your book of, you know, people are going to do things for a lot of reasons. You don't necessarily understand them, but you need to realize that they're out there. Um, I, I, I remember one of the course I took a long time ago was on um, economic anthropology, and it was the behavior of people in different cultures, some of them very removed from, you know, the developed world. And they did some very bizarre things, but they made sense in their situation you know, how they saw the world. Um, so you have to try to help, you have to try to help your, have your client help you understand how they see things. I think it's probably one of the biggest changes. You know, whatever the, whether it's credit or investing, it's, it's an issue of you need to understand where your client's coming from and what their motivators are. Okay. One of the things we do here at Bullshift, the podcast, is we always have the guests uh, come up with two things at the end of the show that uh, would help people get, this is sort of your chance to sort of say what you think. And uh, the first of those two sections is called "That's Bullshift," where where we ask you, where we ask the guest to say, "What is it about the industry that you think um, uh, sort of sticks in your craw, and that you think uh, maybe could be done differently and hopefully better?" Well, I think on the uh, if I look at the investment side of things, I guess I would say uh, I think people should have a better idea of. Um, of what their needs are going to be, as opposed to just throwing money at something and not knowing how it's going to work out. Um, 
which then means they're not going to be able to do that on their own. They're going to have to have somebody help them with that. So I think there needs to be a greater focus, whether it's on whether you want to call it planning or you just want to help, want to call it focusing on people's goals, um, you know, and be a, do a goal based. If I'm going to be putting money into somebody's retirement savings, then there should be a purpose behind that. Um, and then along with that, I don't want the client to run into problems, um, which means there needs to be a better structure in place, which I talked about earlier of helping the client actually understand what they're getting into so that we don't have a situation where it turns out to be, wow, you really shouldn't have been involved in this, should you? Well, no, I shouldn't. Well, it's too bad now. Um, if that had been done in the first place. The other one, which is a big one, is on the lending side. Is people are getting themselves with so much debt now, they don't understand, you know, and at all ages, we're seeing people retiring with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. That in many cases, they've borrowed on a, on a line of credit to give their kids a down payment on a house because they didn't have a penny to their names. Um, but the amount of debt that people are accumulating, and you know, we're just coming out of a phase of cheap, cheap money. And I just wish that people could see the whole picture of how the pieces in a very simplistic way are going to have to fit together. And you're going to have to get rid of this debt. And you're going to have to save for your retirement because here's what it will look like if you don't. Okay, so then that then brings us to something that you said a moment ago. You, you said that a lot of people like to complain, but they don't necessarily take substantive action to deal with the thing that, that's sort of on their mind. They, they, they just sort of fetch, but they don't change their own behavior. So here at Bullshift the Podcast, the first thing is you've identified now a number of problems. That's the that's Bullshift part. Now we get to the second part, which is shift happened. If it was up to you, what would you do to deal with the problems that you've just identified? Um, well, on the, on the investment side of things, as I said, I would, I would say, look, you're, you're, after, you've, after you've completed your licensing requirements, um, you know, like, the, you know, like the however many days training that applies on the security side of things, you have to go through a fairly standardized training program based on the products that you sell or are available for you to sell um, so that we can see that you're capable of doing a proper um, risk profiling your client and coming up with a suitable recommendation for what the investments would be. Not how much, <laughs> but what would be appropriate products for your client, factoring in all the sorts of things that are required to be considered. Um, I think, I'd, and I don't think it'd be complicated, and I think that would, that would serve the clients very, very well. On the, on the other side of things, with regard to credit, um, I think there needs to be a question asked and answered on a credit application for where's this money going to come from? in the long term, you know? And do you understand how this is going to impact other things in your life? So that the question is asked and answered. Right, good to know. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you very much, Lawrence Lynch. This has been a wonderful conversation. It's, it's great to get an insight to uh, a little window to you know, where, where people are going and where the industry is going based on the next generation of people giving the advice. And so you're on the front line of that. And it's funny because, you know, we, we've shared conversations in the past about our, yeah. our, our, you know, concern for financial planning writ large and the advice that we give. But I, I really wanted to have you on this time because it was important to me that, that you, we could have some insight as to what uh, the next generation is thinking and what kind of things we might reasonably expect from them. So thank you for sharing with us. Thank you. I mean, it is, it is interesting. I, I get quite a number of students who, you know, when I read what they're putting together, they really are sincerely interested in helping people, which is what I want to see coming into the program, as opposed to those that are coming in for their own purposes. Right.
Okay. Well, that's optimistic. Uh, I think a lot of people, you know, want to see that. If as long as people have their heart in the right place, then that's usually a, a good a good uh, point of departure, no matter what. So, yeah. thank you, Lawrence. All the best. Thanks, John. Take care. John DeGuey is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book Bullshift: How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTA. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.